This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is going on, brothers and sisters, friends of the Rockney cast? For this episode, I'm going to try to answer the question whether the book Catcher in the Rye should be banned. And here I'm going to actually answer the question right away. Of course it should be banned. It's a freaking awesome book. And I finally read it at the age of 48 years old. And I finally realized why it's so great. Brothers and sisters, I did not read. I may be one of the only people in like the world or the United States that did not read this book in high school and did not read this book in college. And so I was just kind of wondering, like, what's the big deal about Catcher in the Rye? It's just kind of bullshit. It's just like this phony book. So maybe I should finally read it. Then finally, about three or four years ago, I was going through a used bookstore and I found it. And I was like, what the hell? I might as well buy it and see what the whole hubbub's about. And of course, like most books, it took a while to actually get around to it. And I'm going to share with you my experiences and my interactions with this book and sort of address some of the larger topics surrounding Catcher in the Rye, uh, the amount that people have tried to ban the book. I'm going to share with you a word that I learned from one of the critics of the book. I'm going to explore a little bit into this question of the pain that is present in Holden Caulfield, Caulfield, and address that. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what's the best age to read this book, because I definitely think there is a good age to read it. Of course, it is about an adolescent um, male in, on the East Coast and his journey from a prep school, which he's just been expelled, back to his home in New York and kind of that process that he goes through during that journey. And I am going to do a little bit of a spoiler alert on this whole Catcher in the Rye, like why it's called Catcher in the Rye. So if you're looking for like, oh my God, I don't want to read the book and I want to know why it's called Catcher in the Rye, I'm going to give that away. So that is a spoiler alert. So let's give a little bit of an overview of Catcher in the Rye. As many of you know, this book is done in almost every high school in the United States. And I believe it was done in my high school too, at least I think it was. Although my high school teacher elected not to do it. And she was a really great teacher. And now I call out my teachers like in positive ways. I'm not gonna call her out because I think she was a fabulous teacher. So, and I don't know what, maybe that the school board made her cut it out or whatever, but instead of Catcher in the Rye, I read a separate piece, eh, which is kind of good, but I, I could have done without it. But I did read the other big two, which was Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. So, hey, one out of two isn't that bad. And eventually, at the age of 48, I finally read the damn book, and I'm sharing that with you today as far as that goes. So a little bit about the book. Um, as I said, it is the second, at least as of 1973, there was a fabulous uh, journal article that I read called Cherished and Cursed Toward a Social History of the Catcher of the Rye by Stephen Whitfield of Brandeis University. And he said that Catcher in the Rye is the second most read book in high school curriculum and the most banned book in high school curriculums in terms of school boards allowing kids to learn about it. And there's a lot of reasons why that is the case. It was written by this man named J.D. Salinger. I mean, you can look him up on the internet. You can see a whole bunch of documentaries on him. Uh, there's a whole bunch of interesting reasons why I'm interested in Salinger as a person. Very complicated figure, uh, lived from 1919 to 2010, and um, was sort of a recluse. Uh, after Catcher of the Rye came out, I believe it was like 1950, 1951, uh, he wrote for about 10 years after that point, but gradually kind of became a recluse. 
and went into uh, essentially New Hampshire. He settled in a place called Cornish, New Hampshire. And I finally wanted to just read this book because it's like, why is this such, what, 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 what's the big deal? Is it really that good a book? Or to sort of channel Holden Caulfield, is it just bullshit? Is it just about a, a phony writing about phonies? And God, I'm glad I read the book. And I have to say, if, you, if you're if you one of the few people in the world, maybe I suppose there's some of you who haven't read the book because you were one of those high schools where they didn't read it. I don't think that was the case in my high school uh, curriculum, but I, I just didn't read it. I don't know whether it was my teacher's choice or whether the school board thought it was too controversial but this is one of these books that was kind of on my literary bucket list. So I'm hopefully, hopefully you'll find this useful in terms of whether you decide to either reread this book or whether you want to read it in the first instance, as I have, because this definitely should be on your literary bucket list, because I think it also informs the present day related to really controversial um, controversies on the right and left about the language that we use and about the books. Uh, themselves and the types of books that are present. I mean, even as recently as the last week or two, Roald Dahl, the author of Charlie and the Chocolate, Chocolate Factory, has had major portions of his book redone to sanitize them for history. And so I just wanted to read the book because it's one of those books that's kind of a cultural marker uh, for the United States, especially late 20th century. But I still think it informs the discussion today when we talk about the types of books that we should, um, you know, read in the first instance, what's what's appropriate for certain ages, and which books we should maybe say, hey, maybe you shouldn't read it at this age, but maybe you should read it at another age. I think Catching the Ride definitely should be in the high school curriculum. It is something that I think is very important, and I think it is important. Basically, this is an issue not of right and left. Because I think both ideologies can be hoisted on their own petard because both of them do this. And I think that, you know, quite frankly, I think both of them are phonies and pathetic when they can't handle the truth. It's kind of like Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. You can't. And I think of people on the left that are like, oh, my God, you can't use certain words or you can't even read about them, or we have to cancel them because they might they 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 might like make my butt quiver or something, and I just don't know what to do. And then you have people on the right that do the same goddamn thing. Well, you can't read Karl Marx; he's terrifying. Without ever having read any of the works of Karl Marx, or uh, or even books like you know Catcher in the Rye, because it seems to get a rise out of both right and left. And I, I, I wanted to finally, first of all, read the damn thing. So I'd have at least a sense of what type of book it is. And then I'm gonna try to zoom out and sort of talk about some of the larger reactions in the book. And I do encourage you to read this uh, journal article called Cherished and Cursed Toward a Social History of the Catcher in the Rye by Stephen Whitfield, because he gets into this, this kind of interesting discussion of the various points throughout United States history when this book tried was banned. And some of them are kind of comical because if you read it now, I mean, <laughs> this is not, I mean, it's not that it's, it's kind of edgy, but it's, it's kind of not that edgy. So it's, it's kind of funny that at various times people tried to, you know, ban this book or remove it from curriculum. And, you know, basically the right is trying to do the same thing right now with certain types of books. The left does the same thing. Um, and by the way, I don't want you to think like, oh my God, you must be right or you must be left or are you conservative? Actually, right now I am kind of more conservative than I used to be in part because of my belief in the admonition of Vince Lombardi, master yourself before you master others. And I'm going to get into what I think is a lot of the dysfunction of the left about why so many leftists are so miserable lest you get too mad at me, this phenomenon does occur on the right as well. And so we'll also sort of explore that component of it. Uh, but but so this is a book that I, I just felt I had to read and I finally did. 
And if you either haven't read it for a while or you haven't read it at all, you should definitely read it. So the first kind of admonition to you is if you read the book on first reading, you're probably going to think, what, what the hell's the big deal? Right. And that kind of, you're going to have that feeling. It's sort of like, you know, Larry David, the first time you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, it's really not that funny the first time that you watch it. But the more and more you interact with Larry David's mind, the more and more you're like, holy cow, this actually is really good. This probably is the type of book I might just read every couple of years. I, I don't think it's that great, but it is just one of these books that just dives it's so raw. It dives into these deep human emotions of pain and alienation. And especially as it relates to young people, um, that I, I think it is definitely something to know because I think certainly for young people, it is something that they that they struggle with. So when you read the book, first of all, the plot itself, it's not like a page turner, like, oh my God, it's a murder mystery. You know, like, I don't know what's going to happen and I'm just turning each page. And it's not really one of those books where it's full of action. Yeah, I mean, there's a fight. Um, but it, the, the fight's not that good. You know, Holden Caulfield himself, some kids kind of like him, but I think Holden's kind of an asshole. I don't think, I think he'd be one of those like friends you had in high school that you're like, God, you're sort of a dick. Like, I don't think I would like Holden. And the other thing too is, like if Holden doesn't get his shit together, he's going to be like, I would have loved to have seen the sequel uh, to Catcher in the Rye because Colden had some like major, major issues. And the writing is beautiful, but I mean, this ain't not, this is not Hemingway. This is not, I, I didn't think that it was pleasurable in the same way that Sun Also Rises is, where, you know, he takes you to these really interesting places. And, um, you know, like in Hemingway, Sun Also Rises, where you see the bullfight and you get the descriptive color of the plaza and Pompelona and the characters, uh, you know, in terms of just sort of experiencing the beautiful description of the beach, the bulls, the men, the sex, all that stuff. You get that in Hemingway. You know, this has been, some people have described this book as the um, second most important book after Ernest Hemingway. I wouldn't go that far. Like, I, I don't think it's, it's not that descriptive. I mean, it's good, but it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the way that you would think a, like a Iowa writer's workshop would work, write their first you know, kind of bullshit novel, right? I mean, it's good. So in other words, it's a writer's workshop level of detail. Like, so he can write 10 times better than I can, right? So I'm not, you know, I'm not bashing, you know, uh, J.D. Salinger is like a fraud. He is a good writer and it is, it is well-written. And I think you will find certain parts of it um, good. But the plot itself is essentially, I can describe, it's, it's not a spoiler because the point is not necessarily the sequence of events, but it's essentially starts with his just having been expelled from Pensy um, Preparatory School in Pennsylvania. And the book takes us in, you know, I think it's Agers or Agers, Pennsylvania. And I think it's the fourth school that he's been expelled from. So the guy has some major issues. And then he has to tell his parents. And so it's basically between this point between you know, ultimately having to tell his parents, and I don't even know that he gets that far, but this journey that he takes from the prep school, you get a little bit of his experience there and his interactions with some of his roommates to New York. And he he stays in a hotel. Uh, you know, there's some interesting observations in terms of like women. And, you know, he writes descriptions of like a guy cross-dressing and like a pimp and a, and a prostitute and he tries to get, he does get drunk, you know, I mean, so that part of it's, that part of it's kind of interesting. And the book itself is, is good, but it, it's probably one of those things where when you read it, you're going to be like, yeah, I don't know if it's that good, but it's similar to like another thing I think now that maybe it's like Napoleon Dynamite. Like, did you guys laugh the first time you saw Napoleon Dynamite? I didn't think it was that funny. And now I watch it and I'm like, oh my God. Like every time I, seriously, I cannot eat a goddamn tater tot with saying, don't touch my tots. 
can I have a tot? Like, so if you and I ever become friends, I'm always going to say like, can I have a tot? Uh, it gets better and better and funny. And I think this is the way this book is going to be. So I think you should definitely read it. It's really good. And let me just give you a little bit of a sample in terms of like, and you're also never going to say phony the same way. And in fact, you can kind of, I have a friend of mine from law school. Let's talk about a friend of his that, you know, says, oh, this is all bullshit. This is like total bullshit. And that's totally Holden Caulfield. And he's one of these dudes that like, probably isn't superficially that aggressive, but inside is extremely full of rage. And I, and, I, and I think in that sense, in this kind of post-Columbine world, uh, it is this phenomena that even if we don't necessarily like it, can, can really spin off in some really nasty directions if the if the protagonist, in this case, Holden Caulfield, doesn't get his shit together and realize what the hell is going on. But it's it starts, and, and this is basically the tenor of the whole book. So I'll just read the first paragraph for you, and then we'll move on to other topics. But it says, if you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born, what my lousy childhood was like, and how my parents were occupied and all that before me, and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it. If you want to know the truth, in the first place, that stuff bores me. And in the second place, my parents would have had about two hemorrhages apiece if I told anything personal about them. They're quite touchy about anything like that, especially my father. They're nice and all. And I'm not saying that, but they're also touchy as hell because I'm not going to tell you my whole goddamn biography or anything. I'm just going to tell you about the madman stuff that happened to me around last Christmas before I got pretty run down, had to come out here and take it easy. And here he's at, like at a sanitarium in the West Coast. So this is kind of the tenor of the books. And it's pretty much him kind of raging against, he's kind of an asshole. Like everyone he runs into, oh, they're a phony. And he talks about like his friend, um, spread letter who is like this kind of good looking guy who gets all the girls and he obviously has maybe had some experience with girls but not much and he's kind of awkward so it's kind of this description of his experience going through adolescence and the rage that people um feel associated with it and i think he says fuck at some point in here he also uses god damn it which is also one of the reasons why it is, um, I think it tends to be the right that has wanted to ban this book. He also has some derogatory um, words to what we know call the LGBTQIA community, um, where he talks about flits and, you know, he's kind of hard on um, homosexuality a little bit. There's some insecurity there, although you, you can imagine it seems like there might be a little sexual tension between him and uh, Stradletter, you know, this, this other guy in the book um that that's still at pence who he has to write a paper for so that part of it is really good and, and it's this this pain that kind of permeates the book is i think why it it touches so many chords for people and in particular i think it's mostly the right uh that has wanted to kind of suppress this work but i think it's also important because the left does the same thing and um you know so I, I wanted to see, like, I, I, after I read it, I was kind of like, well, what's the big deal? Well, fortunately, I found this good journal article, and it's by the Stephen Whitfield from Brandeis University. He's written, I believe, in 1997. It's called Cherished and Curse, Towards a Social History of the Catcher in the Rye. And, it, and what it does is, and this is why I'm so glad that I've read it, is that because I didn't read it when I was in high school, I kind of knew of it as one of the books that everyone reads. But I I confess, I wasn't really aware of this also being kind of one of the books that led to the cultural milieu of the 1960s and cited by a lot of the leaders of the countercultural movement on campus, in hippie, in hippie circles, Catcher in the Rye was a big one because it's kind of a rage against the machine. You know, why, why society is kind of bullshit. And I think of the movie Into the Wild, where it describes that young man's journey from a, a privileged liberal arts school out to Alaska. This is such a natural part of adolescence. And I think this alienation against the country writ large is one of the reasons why it has touched a tone and, and a, a chord 
with so many people. And in this journal article, though, essentially what it does is it's, it, it sort of goes over, this is written in 1997, for the last 30 years in terms of the various book banning controversies that have existed. And he describes a, um, a scene in the book, in the play, Six Degrees of Separation by John Guare. Um, and they talk about this question of, uh, someone refers to it as a manifesto of hate against quote unquote phonies. A touching story, comic because the boy wants to do so much and can't do anything. He hates all phonies and only lies to others. Wants everyone to like him, is only hateful and is completely self-involved. In other words, a pretty accurate picture of a male adolescent. And what me alarms me about the book is not the book so much as the aura about this. The book is primarily about paralysis. The boy can't function. And at the end, before he can run away and start a new life, it starts to rain and he folds. But the aura of the book is Salinger's, which perhaps should be read by everyone but young men is this. It mirrors, it, it mirrors like a funhouse mirror and amplifies a distorted speaker, one of the great tragedies of our time, the death of imagination, which now stands as a synonym for something outside of ourselves. And I think that pretty much perfectly encapsulates this book. And the reason why it touched the chord, I think, among the right is that this book was a book that originally did not was not known as this cultural touchstone when it was released. It was well-reviewed. It did sell well. It was on the bestseller list. But in, in the 50s, it was basically kind of pulp fiction. It was mass, mass paperback. And it was the teens that were going through this period of adolescence that really were reading the book, as opposed to the, the high school teachers kind of force-feeding it to, to students. And by the time we get to the 60s, Tom Hayden, who was one of the leading radicals of the 1960s, identified Holden Caulfield, as well as James Dean and Jack Kerouac as the three primary kind of jackhammers to open up the cultural writ large to the countercultural movement of the 60s. And I think that is explains why so many conservatives have tried to suppress it. Um, you know, there's the larger cultural discussion, much in the same way that conservatives try to um, suppress Marx, right? And, and and my thing is, it's not necessarily that we need to, like, agree with everything that he said, but you should read it. You should confront it. You should ask yourself a question of it. I'm a huge advocate now of capitalism, right? And I always have been. But I read Marx to be able to inform a critique of it. You can't know a topic until you allow a critique of the uh, of the topic itself. And I think there are so many wonderful parts of this culture, but it's open to critique. And Holden Caulfield is the ultimate crit critic where he sees the prep school elite, his parents, even the nuclear family, um, everyone as a phony. Now, the other reason why it's kind of touched a chord, and this is alluded to in this, this journal article by uh, Mr. Whitfield, is if you're a little off and you rage against the machine, it can cause some really deep and disturbing actions to be taken because you're like, it's all bullshit. It's all external. I hate the world. Mark David Chapman, uh, the assassin to John Lennon, cited this book as one of the reasons why he... Um, did not want that he murdered John Lennon because he thought John Lennon was a phony. And so you can see how, at least in that sense, that, you know, in the minds of someone who can't really handle it, it could be a bad book. But I just want to be clear, this is in no way I, you, you should not ban it. And we're seeing, you know, again, we see the left do the same thing when there's an issue that hurts people of color or the LGBTQ community, or there's ideas that I don't like that they feel triggered People just need to toughen up. I, I don't think the right framework is right-left. I think it's strong, weak, resilient, not resilient. That's what we have to do. We have to, we have to create a culture of strong men, women, non-binaries, everyone that can handle the truth, that can handle opposing ideas. I don't want to hear only what I think, right? And so 
with this particular book is a lens through the culture at large and it's a critique of it. And it is just something that is um, important. And, and, you know, the other thing too, is that I, I think it's one of these books that hopefully in the hands of a skillful teacher can talk about this. Uh, but I think ultimately it's like one of the reasons why I've kind of migrated away from the progressive left is they're all kind of, you know, they're all kind of naive Holden Caulfields, right? They're criticizing others without offering any solution, first of all, before addressing their own issues first, right? They're not holding themselves to the same outer critic, right? And to resolve the inner pain that they have, they're blaming others. And I think of someone like um, AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Ortez, is the modern Holden Caulfield, right? She's raging against capitalism. She's raging against everyone else. She's raging against the federal government. She's educating. She's instructing. But most importantly, she's blaming other people. She's Holden Caulfield. And I think if you follow the formula, it's not that we can't hold our governmental institutions accountable. But, in, but instead of holding Caulfield, who it, it this is a, a glimpse into the uh, rage that people can feel, right? But it's all directed outward. And if you're not going to address your own stuff, you're, you are going to be completely miserable. And that's why so many people on the left are so freaking dysfunctional. They offer a critique without doing anything themselves and not doing the work internally. And I think back to the book that I read on um, Vince Lombardi, uh, essentially from, I think it was David Mar uh, Marineris or something like that. You, you can see it. it's one of the main books um, on Vince Lombardi. And I'm just going to push pause here so I can make sure that I get it for you. When pride still mattered, um, the central point of Vince Lombardi is, and, and this is a phrase that he really believed, which was, um, master thyself before thy attempt to master others. And I think this one thing is why so many people on the left, and I think Holden Caulfield, are so freaking dysfunctional, because they're not mastering themselves. And guess what? If you have the kind of pain that Holden Caulfield, you got to read the book to fully understand the pain without doing your own internal work. And you are going to try to solve it through the federal government or by blaming other people. You are going to be in a constant source of pain if you don't do the work internally. Now, what the, the, the libs and the progressives of the 60s felt was, is I am doing the work in that I don't need to change anything about me and instead, society needs to change. So I'm going to put all my energy into society. And if I change society, then I'll have the utopia such that I can feel good about myself, right? I don't, you know, there's all these problems to solve. But here's the other problem, too, is that when they talk about the work, they're talking about someone else doing the work, the government doing the work, someone else leading the way, someone else doing the work. You know, the number of times, you know, when I was in Iowa City, we would have a, a, a discussion and there would be some issue. We talk about affordable housing or we talk about landlords or anything like that. And rather than offering their own solution, what they would do is just rip on people that were out there doing the work. And there, there are exceptions to that. There are some people doing great work with nonprofits. But for the most part, their way of doing the work was saying, I have the idea. You go do it. And that's why I'm no longer a liberal. I'm no longer a progressive because that model of society. And by the way, if some of you were saying like, Oh my God, what are you doing? Well, I'm not claiming to be perfect. My point is, if there's someone out there doing the work, making the money, meeting payroll, building housing, doing the actions, I am not going to cripple them. And I'm not going to criticize them for being selfish because they're trying to make a buck, supplying services to other people, and they're out there doing the work. I am not perfect, but I know I have to do the work and I have to accept accountability um, for anything that I do, and I can't blame society. You know, and that is the interesting thing about the, the, the sequel to Holden Caulfield is what would have happened. And you can easily see uh, uh, why Salinger 
never really published much. He wrote one other book in the early 60s, but he essentially knew that regardless of which direction Holden went, like, here's here's my thing. Okay, so here's what I think would have happened, and I'd love to see your feedback on this. Holden Caulfield most likely would have been either committed suicide or um, committed an act of violence, been a Columbine-type kid, or gone to prison. That, that's what I think would have happened, right? So if you're not willing to look and do your own internal work, and you're only going to rely on blaming other people about doing the internal work, you are going to be miserable. And then once you realize that the government's not going to solve all of your problems, and blaming does not serve all of your problems, you can do one of two things. You can do drugs, which temporarily alleviates your pain, or you can continue to stew in the pain and you're going to lash out. So that's what I think would have happened. One of the reasons why he never reached out is that uh, is that he or why why Salinger never published again. And he kind of intimated that that had he done that, it would have been a real loss of privacy. So in other words, he didn't necessarily, I think, even really know at the time because he published the book in I believe it was like 1950, 1951 or thereabouts. And when he published it the society hadn't really fissured as much. That really came 10 to 15 years later. I don't get any idea like what he was le- unleashing and why this book became such a catalyst for the left. Now, a lot of you are saying like, oh my God, are you saying that like, if I identify with holding Caulfield that I'm going to become a Columbine killer? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what I think would have happened. And I think that's what the risk is of the book. Now, the other thing is, is why do so many people like the book that didn't end up becoming, you know, dysfunctional inmates? Because it does when you're young and you're angry and it is, you know, you come to life with a sense of this is not fair. Why is Stradletter the one that's getting laid and I'm not? Why are so-and-so the ones doing the fancy vacations and I'm not? Why do some people have all the money and I don't? Why do some people have all the success and I don't, especially when you're in a coming of age where even you notice that certain people look better than you do, have clothes that you don't have access to. It is extremely painful. And so you can see how a a teenager reading this book would identify with Holden Caulfield, the pain that he experienced, right? And that pain is something that's so typical of adolescence. But here, you know, if I were to be, if I were to ever become a high school teacher, like somebody's thinking, oh, you should have been a high school teacher. Well, here's here's why I think it would have been hard for me to teach this, okay? Uh, because it would have been hard for me. I would have wanted to teach, and I, I'm teaching it in the sense of I'm talking about it with you. It would have been very hard for me to teach the book without getting into the metaphysics of religion. Uh, and I, I probably could have done, maybe been some other alternative self-helps, but to deal with the underlying question of pain um, that people feel uh, and, and to talk to the young people about that it isn't, it, it, it isn't necessarily all pain. It's also moments of intense beauty. And by doing the work, it doesn't have to be, I don't have to be a phony. And the other thing too is, what's the huge problem of Holden Caulfield? He's criticizing everyone else and he's not empathizing with the phonies that he detests. They have their own anxieties. They have their own concerns. The people at the prep school have their own pressure cooker that they're trying to do. The expectations of their parents, their future career ambitions, the society writ large. I mean, we're trying to run a society as it is, and we're trying to do the best we can under the circumstances. And he's not hes not anticipating that. And I think that comes down to the, the power of religion. I, I'm, re, I'm also going to do another book, and I think, like, you know, the value of Christianity, as I see it, is this notion that life is good. Life is beautiful. Life is And there is a good and loving God that loves you, right? And that that is real. 
And it is this endless font of beauty that's available to you, but you got to work at it. It's like saying that, you know, and, and the other thing that I think that the left does not get is it's not necessarily a question of being oblivious, but that the negativity cannot be solved and the pain cannot be solved by external factors. That's one aspect to it, uh, but it mostly has to come from within through doing the work. Now, some of you might push back on that um, as far as that goes, but I ask you this. Yes, of course, I've studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I mean, if the government can give you food and shelter, uh, that, of course, is going to be better if, if you're in a situation where you don't have food and shelter, right? And I don't dispute the value of those programs. But let's put it this way. If you have food and shelter and you're doing drugs, you're eating processed food, you're not getting exercise, you blame other people for your own shortcomings, you're fat, you're out of shape, are you going to be happy? Hell no. You're still going to have a hell of a lot of pain. And, you know, the government might be able to do the first and second, you know, basic level of needs, but they're not going to get you up to those higher needs of self-actualization in terms of doing, the government can't make me do this podcast, right? Um, I have to do it. I have to put the work into it. And that's what needs to be taught to kids. And frankly, a lot of adult leftists are always blaming other people. Now, I think, you know, again, the same critique can be applied to the right. I think you can't ignore this phenomena of the pain of adolescent Luth. So primarily it was the right that was trying to ban catcher. It was kind of funny. Uh, Whitfield gets into some of the various objections to the book, not it's necessarily its politics, but uh, they couldn't handle the swear words. And, you know, you get these losers like some conservative attorney in Houston that said, uh, but they tried to even suppress it at the University of Texas. Can you imagine going to college and being like, oh my gosh, I can't handle kitchen and rye. Like it makes my butt quiver. Oh my God, I'm so afraid. But here's what happened. This is from an actual case. He said a prominent Houston attorney whose daughter had been assigned the novel in an English class at the University of Texas threatened to remove the girl from the university. The aggrieved father sent copies of the novel to the governor, the chancellor of the university, and a number of state officials. The state senator from Houston threatened to read passages from the book on the Senate floor to show the sort of thing they teach in Austin. The lawyer father said Salinger used language no sane person would use and accused the university of corrupting the moral fibers of our youth. He conceded the novel is not a hardcore communist type book, but... It encourages you know, a lessening of spiritual value, which in turn leads to communism. Um, even the University of Montana, there was a um, professor there, Leslie Fielder, said the only unforgivable in the thing in the university or state was to be controversial. Nevertheless, he began to make offers to young instructors who had controlled with administrators or had asked their students to read Catcher in the Rye or had themselves written poetry containing words that were frequently just Jewish or simply black. Um, and so these are the sorts of issues that the swear words, these are the sorts of things that actually led it to be um, banned. Like it was a kind of, uh, essentially it was like a kind of evil book that you had to be protected from like you couldn't handle it and i don't know about you but you know when i grew up it starts it's scary when you're like what 11 or 12 and you, you know you have the language among your friends and then i think with adults that we kind of um lose sight of the fact of what kids are actually exposed to that said i do think that there is a an appropriate age to read this stuff and so i, I think high school is an appropriate age the book is kind of edgy but if you're 16 or 17 years old, trust me, just go on to Netflix, way worse. And you need to be able to address these issues and essentially address the pain head on. Because I think pain itself is one of the key things that drives so many people into dysfunction. And you can't address pain by not having people talk about it. And here I'm going to bang on the left. So I banged on the right 
because they're the ones that primarily wanted to ban catcher in the rye. But the left does the same thing. You know, again, as recently as this a week or two ago, people were trying to censor Roald Dahl, um, trigger warnings, you know, the, the snowflakes at, you know, college that can't handle certain types of literature. And here's the other key thing, too, that's an obvious distinction as we think about people like Bobby Kaufman that talk about people that can't handle um, certain types of ideas. There is a difference. There's a difference between, obviously, harassment and ideas, right? So if you present the material in an in a, in a uncontroversial way, you should be able to be on campus. Someone like Dinesh D'Souza, Ben Sapiro, the losers that want to suppress them are just that total losers. You can't handle that. You can't handle a debate. And so many of the left, it's like, oh, well, I'm just right. And I don't like you. And so I'm just going to shut you up. And so they do the same thing. So I, I think this is something where right or left, we can handle the truth. Teach the book. Um, don't worry about the swear words. I think, frankly, I don't know if the goddamn and the fucks and the Christ's sakes. I think one of them said there was a reviewer, Catholic, uh, in the Catholic world named Riley Hughes, disliked the narrator's excessive use of amateur swearing and coarse language, which made his character simply monotonous. According to one angry parent's tabulation, there were 237 instances of goddamn, 58 uses of the synonym for the illegitimate birth, Christ's sakes, and one incident of flatulence that constituted what was wrong with the book. They're like, God. And then it says, the blasphemy is not a crime. The catcher in the rye uses the Lord's name in vain 200 times, an opponent and moron, enough times to ban it right there. And they also used the word, fuck you. Like, it's it's kind of it's funny. Um, and so like they can't handle this. And so it is a book because it is a book that you should read because it does kind of capture this debate that even we're having right now about what kids should read and what they shouldn't read. Um, and so I'm very glad. And I think it's probably the type of book I'm probably going to read again uh, just so I can basically access it. So I also promised you that I would tell you the word and it's a really, it's kind of a $5 word, but I think it's a word that you're really going to like. It's called anime, A-N-O-M-I-E, anime. And it is the social instability resulting from a breakdown in standards of values. And I think if there's any big reason why I'm not left anymore is that they 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 lack the ability to have expectations. And I mean, there are certain times when we do need to have interventions. And among other things, public safety is the focus. Now, obviously, it has to be done in a way that's consistent with basic honor and respect. But to say that certain neighborhoods don't have the right to live in social stability and now whole cities where they won't prosecute violent criminals because they're considered to be woke or that they're because the prosecutors are woke and they don't consider public safety to be a basic element of humanity that we all need. There's only two people that can do it, either us or the government. And this leads to a kind of enemy which is the resulting social instability and how it's connected with Catcher in the Rye is that in the 60s, when so much of the left tried to totally remake society, they, can't, they couldn't run anything. Now, there were certain instances where the hippies kind of figured things out, uh, you know, the, and when they fused some of their ideals with business, the co-op movement was an example of that. Organic agriculture was a good of that. So there were some tangible efforts that I think did give us legitimate fruit. I think they also opened up a space for voices like Catcher in the Rye. Um, I don't think we should all be cheerleaders for the culture, but you gotta have a solution uh, for the problems that arise after that. And so when people gave into the rage, you know, it's kind of like Darth Sidious, they gave into the rage and they said, feel your pain. And what if in response to the adolescent feeling um, you know, you're talking to a young Holden Caulfield and you say, yeah, feel the rage. 
and act out on the rage because that's going to somehow stop the pain. Nothing could be a bigger lie than that. I'm miserable. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. That's the government's fault. I need to vote in my fellow leftists. And all you'll have is one big, huge circle jerk where you all elevate and animate your own um, ideology without actually offering a solution. And I, at, at, in my coming episodes, I'm going to do an episode on what I call lamenting liberals, the lamenting liberals that have talked about how I was in the state of decline because of these mean, bad Republicans. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and I'm going to talk a little bit about just the um, the weakness that's inherent in that ideology, that ultimately, if you look outside to address your pain, you're not going to work, and you're not going to work through it. Now, um, there's a book that I have read that I actually got through um, Netflix in the form of the documentary Phil Stutz. It's called Stutz. It's about Jonah Hill's relationship with his therapist. And Stutz wrote a book on called The Tools, along with a, a co-collaborator, but it's primarily Stutz's ideas about how to address the pain in a way that's constructive, realistic, and actually based upon human experience. Because friends, I'm here now in middle age, and life is full of pain, but it's also full of incredible beauty. And that beauty can only be addressed by addressing your own inner pain. And Holden Caulfield, it's not looking good for him if that ultimately is what ends up being his fate, that he gives into the hate, that he has no solution of his own. It does lead to a certain kind of enemy uh, that will exist in the culture writ large. The other thing, of course, is, is that um, the role of writing in terms of shaping and forming culture, it's good to have these ideas ventilated so that we can interact with them rather than suppress them. Because I think, you know, in defense of the you know people that talk about the pain, the pain is there. You can't ignore it. Um, you know, Marx uh, talked about the pain that results from capitalism, certain types of industrial capitalism. And he asked himself, what were the ways to address the pain? What were the procedures that could be put in place to help people address it? And he asked that question. I can handle reading about that, even though I reject subsequent thinkers' methods to try to implement that. I'm glad I've read that critique. And in some ways, even though Holden Caulfield, it was not an explicit criticism of capitalism or culture, it was about his own rage, it is illuminating on the culture itself, and it, and it provokes this discussion. You know, because of this book that was written in the mid-20th century, you and I are having this conversation now. And it is one of those books where you think about it, you'll never say phony in the same way, but it doesn't form the way that you think. And so, you know, I would like to go back to my high school English teacher and kind of figure out why we didn't read the book, whether it was because of pressure from the school board. A separate piece, it's kind of, it kind of sucked. I mean, like some kid pushes some other kid off a branch or at least that's the whole point of the book. Eh, I could have dealt without it. It's not near as raw and edgy as uh, uh, Catcher in the Rye. So, you know, I think the other piece of it is, is that, you know, what's kind of the inkling of Catcher in the Rye? And here I'm going to give away why it's called Catcher in the Rye, that um, essentially he's miserable right? And he is in so much pain throughout the book. And it's basically his journey of pain. And he gets drunk and he gets in a fight. And, and he wears this badass hunter hat that he wears throughout New York. And he tries to get laid by a prostitute. And it's just all this rage. But what's the one thing where he thinks it's going to make him happy? He overhears someone singing the song Catcher in the Rye. Um, and he actually kind of gets it wrong. Um, and here's the book, it's at page 224, where he talks about Catcher in the Rye, that he thinks, and he's talking to his sister Phoebe, he says, um, he's talking about the Catcher in the Rye, and that he would be really happy. And then he asked her, he asked herself, he asked her, this is Holden talking to his sister, you know that song, If a Body Catch a Body Coming Through the Rye? It, it's If a Body 
meet a body coming through the rye, old Phoebe said. It's a poem by Robert Burns. I know it's a poem by Robert Burns. She was right, though it is. If a body meet a body coming through the rye, I didn't know it then, though. And then he continues, and this is what's key. Um, I thought that if it was a body catch a body, I said, this is Holden speaking. Anyway, I keep picturing all of these little kids playing some game in a big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids and nobody's around, nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the, play, the, the cliff. I mean, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I just be a catcher in the ride and all. I know it's crazy, but it's the only thing I'd like to really be. I know it's crazy. Um, and then uh, his sister doesn't really give him any um, <laughs> credence to that that view. She says, didn't say anything for a long time. Then when she said something, all she said was, daddy's going to kill you. And this is about the fact that you know he'd been kicked out and having to confront the father. And we recognize this is that he doesn't actually ever confront the father about this. Um, and so you don't really get into that piece of it. Um, but then later on, um, when they're in the park, you know, Holden realizes that maybe I don't necessarily have to fall off the horse. The things is, if they want to grab the gold ring, sometimes you just have to let them do it. Can't save the world. And I think that's kind of, you know, when I got involved into politics, and I think this is why so many progressives, including AOC, uh, including, you know, a lot of the activists out there, you ever met an activist? Well, that used to be, I mean, I used to be one. Is that to address the pain, they try to save someone else, right? In a way that ultimately is unsavable if they don't want to be saved. And so if you can't ever save anyone, you're on a constant merry-go-round where you're trying to save the world, but in the words of Vince Lombardi, you haven't mastered yourself. And without mastering yourself, no amount of external action is going to address that deep underlying pain that you have. And, and, and really, that's kind of his initial instinct was that he's going to try to save other people. And that would somehow make them feel better. And that's what happened with so many people of the, of the left of the 60s. They tried to save the world. And in the only process, they just made themselves that much more miserable. Now, they did do a lot of good things. They opened up a lot of fissures in the culture. And they gave us all space to be free thinkers. Because that's ultimately what we're called to do. Is exercise our freedom to think, to believe, to write, to talk. And to do it in a way that's respectful of other people. And that is the key to literature, and that's the key to this book. And I'm so glad that I read the book, um, you know, with my teacher. Gosh, I just, you know, wish I read it. So Whitfield, at the end of the book, um, and I suppose this is probably more addressed, like if you're a high school teacher trying to teach this book, or if it's still kind of controversial, and I have no idea. Uh, my daughter's all about ready to enter high school. And I assume City High School still teaches this. But I'm I'm not really sure. But of course, every book, there's always an effort to sanitize it. And he really concludes it, um, this this whole description. And it's basically a journal journal article on the efforts to ban and the the underlying cultural trends that have given rise to this fissure as encapsulated in this book. And of course, with with Salinger being the center of it, you can see why he was basically driven into exile because as this argument blossomed between these two poles of the American culture, people of course wanted him to be able to resolve it and he couldn't do that. There's a, there's a point where literature takes on a world of its own. And here it's kind of a, a, a beautiful um, end to the uh, uh, this journal article by um, Dr. Whitfield, Stephen Whitfield, who I believe is still alive, um, retired now. He's at Brandeis University. They're talking about uh, the efforts to sanitize the work. And this has been an ongoing topic up through the peasant day. You can't do it. Um, you know, that, and he talks about Emerson recommended to Whitman for leaves of grass to be sanitized, and that Lewis Carroll intended to enact with a volume entitled The Girl's Own. Shakespeare, 
expurgation. And then he says, and I quote, and this is Mr. Whitfield talking about catcher. Beautiful conclusion. Had Holden's lingo been sanitized in, accord in accordance with the legacy of Dr. Thomas Bowdler, the moral or moralistic, moralistic resistance to Salinger's novel would have evaporated. Boulderization constitute what's a leading student has called literary slump clearance, but it also cordons off the censors. Of course, Holden would have not been the Holden with the expletives deleted. The guileless integrity of his language makes him so memorable and therefore the novel so distinctive. And Richard Watson Gilder had inflicted the kindest cuts of all on Hutt's talk. But by the 1950s, no expurgators, expurgators survived to spare Holden from the animosity he incurred. Such an explanation may be too obvious and all. If you really want to know, it simply kills me for Christ's sake. But I really believe it's the best, best explanation. I really do. So, wow. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this particular um, podcast as much as I did. I think this is so timely. And of course, the answer is, is no, the book shouldn't be banned. Books shouldn't be banned. We should be able to read them. I think there's some outer limit here in terms of the age at which certain books should be at least taught. Now, you can read anything at any age, and you, you, you can do that in the privacy of your own home. But there is an age in terms of when you should be teaching things. You know, I, I don't want to teach a first grader about genitalia. There is an age at which we've got to teach kids about sexual functioning, right? So there's an age. Um, and I think 17, 18 is a good age for it. Um, I do think, though, it has to be done in such a way in which... I also talk about the good news because I think for me, that's what I've learned at my stage of life is that, yeah, there's a lot of pain in life, but there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of techniques to get to that beauty. And that we all can get there through the proper application, daily application and focusing on the words of Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, the great Stoics, focusing on what we can control. And we can control a lot more about our fate than we ever dreamed possible and that is something that I think is, um, to some degree, a lesson that's lost in um, by Holden. And I think it's too bad because I think Holden's about ready to live a very miserable life because he has no insight into the underlying cause of his pain. Um, you know, and I think one other just sort of little lanyard that I'll give you here is, you know, the... Uh, um, Huck, Huckleberry Finn and Holden Caulfield, the two, you know, the two people that have been um, beloved, but also banned. And I think this is a type of literature that is precisely what we need to create in our kids is that they're resilient, that they can consider both sides of an argument, they can, que they can question things, they can focus on mastery of particular skills to learn that there are not simple answers. I mean, that's the whole problem with so much of the left is if there's just simple answers, all we need to do is wave a magic wand and have the right feeling that everything else is going to happen. And, you know, again, I, I think like with, um, you know, the right that's criticized Marx, not that he got everything right, but there was a lot of pain that was created. And how do we address that pain? So it, it, it's just one of the, and I'm not someone who always feels that, oh, we always have to present both sides. I don't feel that. I mean, ultimately right now, I'd probably call myself a libertarian conservative, uh, but I don't like labels and I don't like being bound by the ideology of labels. I think there are some things absolutely in which government has done a fantastic job. Um, you know, I think they do a good job of our roads and all these sorts of things, but there's some things they do a horrible job. They do a horrible job in regulating what we can read and what we can't. They shouldn't do that. They do a horrible job in terms of like higher calling and solving our own basic issues and relieving our pain. Only you can do that, my friends. And your starting point should be at least to read the book. Hopefully, if you're reading it with the young people, that it can start a conversation about the pain and you can have a sense of maybe you should couple Catcher in the Rye with, you know, the sort of the mindfulness like John Kabat-Zinn to get into the insight of the nature of the pen. So, so maybe that's what I would do if I were reading books. Luther College professors, if you're out there listening, read Catcher in the Rye and then follow it with Zen Buddhism, John Kabat-Zinn, um, Judson Bre Brewster, all of the, or Judson Brewer, um, a great a mindfulness scholar, a neuroscientist. So, hey, 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the RecmeCast. If you did and have gotten this far, please follow the podcast. Give me positive reviews on Spotify, um, iTunes, all places where podcasts are heard and continue to spread this message of what we're trying to achieve here. Send me your feedback, rockmecole at gmail.com, rockmecast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feedback on this particular issue. Read the damn book. You'll love it. Read it with your son, your daughter. Um, it's, it's a good starting point for a conversation about how to deal with this pain because pain can be the cause of so much dysfunction in relationships and the culture in our own personal development. So um, stay tuned for further episodes of the Rocky Cast. We are going to do work on Phil Stutz and how to address some pain. So I'm going to offer some tools for you. Um, we're going to get into some of the works of Judson Brewer, um, John Kabat-Zinn, Titch, some of the Buddhist scholars that I think I really, really like and I think will help um, good work. And we're going to continue to make commentary on politics, um, health, um, wellness, all things that are going to improve your life because that's really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to share what I've learned to the benefit of you all. And hopefully it resonates in such a way that it does touch and change your life because that is the goal of the Rapi Cast. So thank you so much. And until next time, we see each other again on the Rapi Cast. <laughs>